Judges chapter 6, our first of the two readings we have this evening. This is found on page 247 of the Church Bibles. Judges chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped out on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that, is, that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of, ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the, the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord uh, there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. That same night, <clears throat> the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to bull 
and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was bull's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down bull's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Bull's curse? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Bull's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, Let Bull contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed out the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. This next reading is from Judges chapter 7, verses 1 to 25, and that can be found on page 249 in the Church Bibles. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps, from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the three hundred, 
who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servants Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as the man was telling his friend a dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianites' camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all round the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher and Ormanasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Bethbara. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the, of the Jordan as far as Bethbara. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is the word of God. Good evening. Hannah, thank you so much for reading. And thank you, Hayden, as well. We've got quite a big passage to think through, so um, let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. We thank you for this book of Judges and for how you speak to us through it. Um, thank you for everything we've learned in previous weeks. I would pray you'd help us uh, tonight. It's quite a big passage, so we pray you'd give us ears to hear, uh, keep us attempt attentive, and we pray, Father, that you give us soft hearts to receive uh, what you want to say to us. 
through your word by your spirit this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been tempted to doubt God's goodness? For example, have you ever wondered if the suffering and pain we encounter in this world is, is because God isn't interested enough to intervene? Maybe God just doesn't care. Or have you ever been tempted to doubt God's power? So have you ever thought that the reason that there's suffering and injustice in the world is because God isn't actually powerful enough to intervene? Maybe God's not able to do anything about it. In tonight's passage, we encounter a man and a nation who had these very doubts, which might explain why Israel frequently turned to idols instead of trusting God. Previously, we've observed how there's this repeated cycle in Judges of the Israelites sinning, then experiencing God's judgment, then crying out to God for help, then receiving God's deliverance and peace, only for them to later sin again by committing idolatry, and thereby starting a new cycle. So it's really no surprise that when we come to chapter 6 and 7, we see that same cycle play out. The opening verses of chapter 6 briefly explain the first three stages of this new cycle. Sin, judgment, and Israel's cry for help. Our first heading is this, Israel's cry. We've got quite a lot of ground to cover uh, this evening, so let's dive straight in. Look at me. Turn back with me to chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Imagine being so scared of a group of people that you you had to hide yourself in a cave or a mountain cleft. That's the level of terror that the Midianites are imposing um, on the Israelites. Why are they producing this sort of fear in them? Let's continue. Verse 3. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them on their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. The Israelites' livelihoods have been so plundered over the years by the Midianites that they're now in the middle of a huge financial crisis. They have no cattle or sheep, which means that the supermarket shelves, the meat supermarket shelves, are are empty. And their donkeys have been killed. So there's no transport. It's equivalent for us of the um, the pump at the petrol station being empty, the train lines and the bus routes not operating. So Israel finally cries out to the Lord. After seven years, they think it's now time to call on him. Now, I want us to notice how God 
replies. We move now from Israel's cry to God's reminder. Have a look at verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. What might Israel have wanted God to give them? You'd think a deliverer, right? That's what he's previously sent, and as we'll see, will send again. But before he does, he sends them a prophet. Why a prophet? I think it's because their need to hear God's word is just as vital as they need to be rescued. And here's why. Israel keeps self-sabotaging. Whenever God rescues them, although they might refrain from committing idolatry for a short while, they inevitably return to it. Maybe what they need is, is a bit of a reality check. Maybe they need to pause and take stock of just how ineffective and inadequate their idols actually are. Why are they in their current situation? Because of their idolatry. So when will Israel learn that their idolatry is futile and harmful? Look at what God says through the prophet in verse 10. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. When God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt as, and then gave them the promised land, he warned them not to commit idolatry. And that's because he's their God. He's, he's their rescuer. And he'd revealed himself to be faithful and reliable. You see, God wants them to remember these things. Did you notice how... Um, in verses 7 to 10, God repeatedly tells them how he had been the one to save them. So he says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you. Sadly, Israel has a short memory. They need reminding of what God has done for them. And they need reminding of who God is. You see, I think a key way for Israel to turn away from idolatry is to know, really know just how wonderful the Lord is, the Lord is and how infinitely superior He is to any of the idols which they might be tempted to follow. And I think the same is true for us. How are we going to turn away from the idols of this world? By remembering that God is better. God is greater. And the rest of our passage shows us how, just how much greater God is. I think the, the big question this passage is challenging, 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 challenging us to think about is this. Will we trust God or will we trust idols? Will we trust God or will we trust idols? One thing we cannot do is trust both. You see, that didn't work 
for Israel. And it won't work for us. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Now, I think the rest of our passage makes a great case for why we should trust and serve God, not idols. And please bear in mind that when I say idol, I don't mean, I don't primarily mean worshipping another deity like Marduk or Baal or Asherah. We're not particularly tempted to serve those. By idol, I mean anything that we might treasure or value above the Lord himself. Anything that gives us more confidence and trust than God. Here's the the first thing I want us to notice about why it's worth trusting in God instead of idols. It's God's grace. I think the main truth about about God that the writer of Judges really wants us to, to, to understand is God's grace. God's grace is the common thread running through this entire section, along perhaps with Gideon's weakness and fear. Now, why do, why do the Israelites need to know that God is gracious? Maybe they started to doubt it. Maybe they're tempted to think that the situation they're in it's because God doesn't care about them. That's certainly, I don't know if you notice in the reading, that, that's certainly what the Israelite Gideon seems to think. Let's have a look at his conversation with God. Have a look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all these wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Uh, Before I I explain what I think is happening here, it's worth asking, who is the angel of the Lord? It's not just an angel. uh, I think it's God. Because the angel of the Lord in subsequent verses, we find is, is referred to as the Lord. So the conversation that Gideon is having here isn't just with an angel. It is with God himself. Sometimes the Old Testament refers to the Lord as an angel of the Lord. Now, here's what I find striking. Did you notice how Gideon answers God? So God tells Gideon that he's with him. But Gideon questions him. Gideon says, well, it doesn't feel like it, God. Yet, how does God respond? God is patient with him. God doesn't tell him off or, or reprimand him. Instead, in verse 14, we find, him, we find God reassuring him. And in order to give Gideon confidence, he tells Gideon that he himself is sending Gideon to save Israel from the Midianites. 
again, how does Gideon react? He makes excuses. In verse 15, he says, hey, look, my clan is too weak. And look, my family, my own family don't even think that much of me. God first told Gideon that he was with him, but Gideon questioned it. Now, God tells Gideon that he's sending him into battle, but Gideon's making excuses. This is the pattern throughout this section. God tells Gideon something, and Gideon's like, "Mm, I'm not sure. After Gideon is done making excuses so as not to fight against the Midianites, God makes him a promise. He says in verse 16, I, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. That's God's promise. Notice again Gideon's response. What does he say in verse, what does he do in verse 16? He asks for a sign. He says, hey, if it's God, if it's really you, prove it. And what does God do? God obliges. So Gideon demands a sign, and God goes, okay. There's, there's meat and bread on this rock, and God torches it. And Gideon's like, uh-oh. But Gideon starts to lose it. He starts to freak out. When he realizes, oh, actually, I've been talking to God. I'm in real trouble now. He thinks he's going to die. But again, what does God do? God reassures him. Gideon, you're not going to die. It's okay. You're not going to die. I have a purpose for you. I've promised I'm going to use you to defeat the Midianites. You can chill. You can calm down. But before Gideon goes into battle, there's an extremely important task that he needs to do. Gideon is going to have to deal with Israel's slavery. Their slavery has been at the the heart of all their issues, of all their troubles. Gideon is going to have to destroy the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole. Now, did you notice during the reading why that might be a bit of an issue for Gideon? Who originally set up the altar to Baal? Gideon's dad. Gideon isn't... he isn't esteemed by his family as it is. Imagine what destroying the altar to Baal is going to do to his family relations. Gideon just about manages to, to pluck up the courage to, to topple the idols. But he's really concerned that people might find out that he did it. So what does he do? He does it at night. Now, why, do, why is this detail included, that he does it at night? I think, it's just, I think it's to show us just how terrified and also weak Gideon is as a leader. He's not the strong, courageous leader. He's weak. He's fearful. Yet God is patient with him. God's still going to use him. Now, when the the town finds the idols destroyed and discovers that Gideon is responsible, what do they want to do? 
They want to kill him. But in a, in a surprising turn of events, his father, who'd been the one to build their very altar to Baal that Gideon destroyed, stands up for him. And all of a sudden, as Gideon's dad stands up for him, all of Israel listens to him, and they rally behind Gideon. One moment, they're like, oh, kill Gideon for what he did to, to the Baal altar. Then next, they're like, oh, Gideon's amazing. Baal, you can't, Baal, try to take on Gideon. You can't. Like that, it's, what on earth happened? It's, are these just the most fickle people you've ever met? It is so strange. And I think it's meant to make us think, hmm, this is really weird. Why do you want to kill this man one second and the next? You're, you're celebrating him. You see, I, I, I don't think that the people here are just fickle. I think there's more that's going on. I think God has been at work changing people's perceptions of Gideon. Why do I think that? Because God has said that Gideon's his man. So if all of Israel wants to kill him, God's not going to let that happen. This is God's chosen man to fight against the Midianites. God's made a promise. Nothing is going to get in the way of him fulfilling and keeping that promise. Now, I want us to notice two more ways in which God's grace is revealed. So although God promises Gideon that he will defeat Midian, and although God's spirit comes upon Gideon, we see that in verse 34, Gideon is still unsure. So look at what he says in verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you've promised, look, I will place a a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. What has Gideon just done? He's tested God. And he, it's not like he, he's done it without realizing he's done it. He says in verse 39, Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. Folks, Gideon tests God, and this is like a big no-no. Yet God allows it, and and even does what Gideon asks. Now, as a brief aside, many Christians, um, you know, look at these verses and think that the story here about the fleece is an example for us on how to to discover or seek God's will for our lives. But I think nothing can be further from the truth. I think that it's not doing that at all. Remember, Gideon is testing God. That is something we should not be seeking to do. You see, the fact, the fact that Gideon is, is testing God 
God shows us that he's not fully trusting God's promise. So putting out a fleece, that's not a positive example. It's a negative one. Why is the story here? It's not so that we can then lay out fleeces ourselves to find out God's will. This is showing us just how gracious God is. You see, Gideon is being treated way, way better than he deserves. And it's all because of God's grace. This is what is running through this passage. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. We see it again in chapter 7, verse 9. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. Gideon is quaking in his boots, and God knows it. God doesn't rebuke him for it, or, or, or you know, for, he doesn't rebuke him for his apparent lack of faith or his fear. Again, God reassures him. And this is how he does it on this occasion. He says, look, go down to the Midianite camp and take Pura with you. When you go down, you'll hear them say something, and, and, and what you hear is going to encourage you and give you tremendous confidence. So Gideon goes, okay, yeah, I'll go down with my friend. I need a bit of encouragement. So he and Pura stealthily go down to the camp where they hear this man telling a, a really odd dream where this, this loaf of bread knocks down a tent. And so the, the, the friend then interprets the dream and he says, hey, this is, this is foretelling the defeat of the Midianites by God's deliverer, Gideon. So Gideon hears this, and he's galvanized. According to verse 15, he returns to Israel's camp, spurring on the troops, saying, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Friends, Gideon finally, finally has the courage to pursue the Midianites. And it is not because he is strong. This man is weak and fearful. Why is he ready now? He's ready because God has been so incredibly gracious and patient with him since that very first moment he spoke to him under that oak tree. Now, why is it so significant to see that God is patient? Why, to, to, see, to, to see God's gracious and patient interaction with Gideon. I think this is, this is meant to teach Israel something. I think it's meant, it's meant to teach them that God is a gracious God. You see, the fact that the Israelites are, are suffering at the hands of the Midianites, this is purely because of their sin. It's not because God has been harsh or because he's forgotten them. Their sin has caused them 
to be in this situation. You see, the Israelites, they had turned their backs on God for, for idols. They turned their backs on this gracious, covenant-keeping God who would save them so that they would be his very own, his treasured possession. This God is the one who rescued them. This God who is slow to anger and rich in love. That's the God that abandoned. But not only had they withdrawn from the God who is full of grace, they had also turned away from the only God, the only one who is actually powerful enough to do something about their situation, to save them. We thought about God's grace. We now turn to God's power to save. In verse 22, we read, The Lord caused the men throughout the camp, that is the, the camp of Midian, to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mehola, near Tabat. Gideon's men put Midian's massive army to flight. Now, Midian's army is 135,000 strong, which is 450 times larger than Gideon's, which is made up of only 300. Why does God, also, why does does God tell Gideon to attack Midian with such a small army? So we learn in chapter 7, that um, earlier in chapter 7, that Gideon, he'd originally managed to gather an army of 32,000 soldiers, which is not bad, but it's still only a fifth of the size of the Midianite army. Surprisingly, God says, you've got too many men. You need to cull your, your, your army. So Gideon gives permission to the soldiers who are feeling afraid to go home. So they lose quite a few soldiers. Now they've got an army of 10,000 remaining. God says, that's still too many. Finally, the army's whittled down to 300. Less than 1% of the original size. With the war still raging in the Ukraine, imagine if... Volodymyr Zelensky would have suddenly announced that he was slashing the, Ukraine's, the size of Ukraine's military by 99%. What would you think? You'd probably think that Ukraine might as well surrender. They'd have no chance of holding off the Russians. Why does God want Israel to go to battle with such a tiny army? Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Why does God want Israel to, to enter a battle where they're outnumbered 450 soldiers to one? So that when they win, there's not going to be a shadow of a doubt as to who is responsible 
for their victory. You see, God is the one who defeats his people's enemies. He's the rescuer. He's the one with the power to save. It would have sounded mad for Israel to go into this battle with with such a small army. This plan of God's to rescue his people, it would have appeared ludicrous. But that is how he reveals that he, that he is the Savior. In the New Testament, God's plan to rescue his people through his son dying on a cross, well, that also sounded absurd. And the Apostle Paul admits to as much. In 1 Corinthians, he says, the message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Yeah, I know that. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In Judges, we learn that Israel's trust in God waned. And this led them to to trust in idols. So in these chapters, God wants to reveal himself again as the Savior. He reminds them that it is he who saved them from slavery in Egypt. And it is he who can save them if they will repent. When Israel cries out to the Lord, he comes to their rescue. He's gracious like that. And you see, he comes before they've even fully repented, which is interesting. He comes when the the altar to Baal is still there and the Asherah pole. And it's like, okay, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to help you. But we're going to have to get rid of these things that are really harming you. Friends, praise God that he has saved us from our greatest foes. He has saved us from our our greatest enemies. Our enemies are not the Midianites. They're sin and death. And anyone who cries out to God for salvation, who turns to him in repentance, asking for the forgiveness that comes through the cross, you will be saved. God's promised it. If you've never turned to to Christ to, to receive that salvation that is available, Please, um, consider it. I hope you'll take his offer of salvation seriously. God is a gracious God. He wants to save you. And he's a powerful God. He can save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how this passage shows us your grace. Sometimes we're tempted to think that we only see your grace in the New Testament, but your grace is all over the Old Testament. Gideon didn't deserve your grace, and the Israelites didn't deserve your grace, and we don't deserve your grace, which is why we are so grateful and thankful to you for it. Thank you for showing us grace, and thank you for for saving us, and thank you for using foolish ways um, or what seems like foolishness to the world 
to save your people so that we can know that you, you really are the Savior. Help us to rejoice in you, our Savior, and to trust in you, not in anything else. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.